0: When thousands of objects were gathered into museums at the end of the 19th century, it was argued that they could provide object lessons in human culture.
1: The object lesson was thought of as a tangible example of an abstract principle, but was also supposed to teach people how to act by showing the details of a bad situation.
0: What lessons do African objects have for us in the 21st century?
1: What can we learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe?
0: What can they teach us about being and becoming human?
1: These are some of the questions we want to return to in our conversations with scholars, curators, artists and activists.
0: African object lessons is an opportunity to go deeper, to hear different perspectives and to think in about and beyond the museum. My name is Benjamina Efodaze and I'm a Collections Assistant in Anthropology at MAA Cambridge.
1: My name is Chris Wingfield and I'm an Associate Professor in the Arts of Africa at the Sainsbury Research Unit in Norwich. Thank you very much George um, for, for joining us in this episode and um, could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself
2: uh, and your background? Um... Yes, I teach in the Department of Fine and Applied Arts um, University of Nigeria in Soka um, and in 2018 I was um, accepted to work uh, on the reentanglement project so and that's uh, warranted my traveling to the University of Cambridge to do some collections-based research at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge.
1: Great and um and and did you had you done much of that kind of collections work before you started working on the Read Entanglements
2: project? Um not really the only kind of collection I've worked with um is the Mayube Archive in, in University of Western Cape in Cape Town? So the Mayube Archive uh, is a, has a collection of artworks and, and audio recordings uh, collected in the context of in the, the anti apartheid struggle. So at that time I was a student of the museum program, called the African program in, in museum and heritage studies. And I did my internship at the Mayabria archive, documenting the prints in the collection, and um, before the end of the program, I created an exhibition using a selection of prints from the collection. So that's the only kind of work that I've done that's that's close to what I did in Cambridge.
0: Thank you so much, George, for for joining us uh, today. Um, Can you perhaps, share how you became interested in the the re-entanglement project um, and sort of what drew you to want to be part of the project itself? Yeah,
2: I did my PhD in Cape Town. And my project was on photography and social media. So I did some work on how Nigerians use Photographs on Facebook in the context of activism. So, and it drew me to c- c- colonial history in the sense that what is happening in Nigeria now on social media is not necessarily new. Um, photography is not new in Nigeria. So, I was able to, to trace the evolution of the political use of photography from the 1950s um, down to this moment. So, I thought that it would be interesting to look at collections that are also um, not of this, this moment, but of uh, decades ago. Um, and that was how I got interested in the Moscow, the mosque collection, and also because I did a program in Museum Studies where um, we worked with some collections in Cape Town. There's um, this Ezekiel Museum in Cape Town, where we did uh, some research and some projects. So all of those came together to ignite my interest in the reentanglements project. And because I also studied visual arts uh, in my undergraduate program and masters. So uh, I've been interested in, in artifacts and photographs, whether they are of this moment or they are uh, very old, like the Moscow collection
1: thanks george uh, we We have an episode with Paul Basu where he talked a little bit about that collection and the formation of the collection in the early decades of the twentieth century. Um, but when you kind of arrived in Cambridge uh, and encountered that collection, um I mean how did you find that kind of experience and, and was it what
2: you were expecting? no it wasn't uh, my expectation at all uh, because while in Nigeria, we always say that we've lost um, our, our history, our culture. People are worried that we don't always find um, material, material cultural objects, you know, produced some 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 time in the past. So, and I was shocked to see some of the things I could relate with when I came to Cambridge. So I remember, for example, there is some. Um, a bunch of broom which i which i photographed and i quickly connected to it because my grandmother used the broom to to stir obono soup there's a kind of soup called obono and it's not it's not you don't use normal ordinary spoon to stir it rather you use a bunch of broom to to do that so i was shocked that um <laughs> that was <laughs> was kept in cambridge and i my my grandmother is no more she died some years ago, and since that time I've not seen that kind of that broom again until I came to Cambridge. So it was a bit of surprise but also
0: excitement. And in terms of the photographic collection, um, what are some of the of the reactions that you had when you saw these these negatives or these sorry plates? Um, because obviously that's that has been your field. And so what was the first reaction?
2: So, I felt like, ooh, my my own ancestors could be here, and I, I, I don't know. So, but later I realized that Thomas did not work in my community. I felt like, oh, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would be happy to have my, my grandfather or my great-grandfather photographed by Thomas so that I would get a sense of how, how he looked. So, um, and then I, I saw different photographs depicting different things, depicting people, festivals, objects, um sceneries, and I was excited to see how how the Ibo land looked like, you know, and some of the people I saw in the photographs looked like people today, very strong and robust and good looking. I was like, oh, these people were, were so much like us today, so, which in a sense um, disagrees with uh, ideas like evolution, or the objectification of the African people, which we've always, always um, struggled with.
1: I remember, I mean, I was involved was working at the museum at the time that that project happened and you and you came to work. It it struck me and I remember you talking a bit about it, but how photography was so much a part of your method um, and your method of kind of engaging with things. And and there's an interesting sort of connection between that older practice of photography and your own kind of engagement with the collection. Yeah. Yeah. True. Because that
2: that was a, a a different kind of photographic production. So it was produced in an entirely different context. So, um, I know there are different kinds of debates around colonialism in Nigeria. So where, for example, many people feel that it was not violent at all. So people feel that there was this kind of um, cooperation between, between Nigerians, and, and the, the British, a lot of things uh, has some violence that I can read in it. So, like the, the, given, the, the numbering of, of, the, of the portraits rather than writing their name, although some of tried to write the you know, names of those few photographs, but not all of them were written. You know, so, yeah, it was fascinating to encounter the collection.
0: And thinking about how you felt when you saw these photographs, and field work that you did in Nigeria how i'm I'm just wondering how and if you sort of separate the researcher from the person that George is, you know um and how any yeah, how do you bring that or those two persons to the site of your fieldwork um which of course, is also your home. Um, so how do you separate George from Dr. Agbo, uh, if you do? And how do you take both of them to Nigeria?
2: Yeah, it was a bit of struggle because it, the trouble with separating myself from from the um, um, the research setup, is that if you do that, then the, your informants or the members of the community will look at you like an outsider, you know? They will look at you like another white man in black skin who has come to do research in their community. And of course, in some places where we visited, we were confronted. Um, as people who were sent by the British to come and do the kind of work they did in the past, especially in communities that have records of looting of artifacts. So in that case, um, I will present myself as one of you. That I am from Nigeria and these materials are photographs of our ancestors it gives me pleasure to bring them back home. I am home, these photographs are home. And I tell you that even before I traveled to Cambridge, I didn't know that we have these kinds of materials, you know, lying out there, um, and I'm happy to bring them home. And we have to begin to think of writing our own history. For so long, outsiders have written our history. It is time for us to write our history. And I want you to see me and you as as, um, as the same. So in that case, um, I'll try to, I'll try not to separate myself from the people I met. So, but there are some other instances where I did not bring out my identity. I do not even mention that I came from Cambridge. I, I just mentioned that the photographs were uploaded on the internet and we had access to them. Because those ones would begin to treat me as, as, an European, as, a, as a European and begin to make demands like you have to pay some amount of money to be able to have a conversation with us. So I played politics with uh, positionality there. Do you think there was
1: a kind of a, a, a different set of expectations um, within the UK and, and, and within Nigeria about what this kind of project would achieve?
2: Yes, you know, the the debates in the UK and even across Europe about repatriation um, and restitution, you know, generates a a different kind of response in Nigeria. Because while in the UK, I thought that people in Nigeria would feel, wow, you have brought back our, our artifacts. And in fact, we have to go and bring more. Um, because the artifacts were actually presented to them in form of photographs. So I didn't take back the actual artifacts. So I thought that people would demand for the actual artifacts to say that, look, um, we didn't even know that you have all of these things in the collection in the UK, and I think these things have to be brought back to us because they belong to us. So I expected that from, from the people, but incidentally, I didn't hear much of that. Instead, people felt that um, as long as the objects are left in the UK and they are fine there, that's that's okay. And they also feel that they will not be able to take care of the, the objects if they are brought back to Nigeria. And as for the photographs, they are okay with, the, with seeing the photographs. They don't, they don't want the original photographs to be returned or the negative. They don't want to do anything with them. Instead, they use the copies of the ones we've given them to do all sorts of things. Some did not even request for the soft copy of the photographs. We, we, we are the ones who will tell them about soft copies and, uh, and send them to them, or even print uh, in high-res and, and give them. So they would even use their phones to photograph the printed copy. So they didn't care so much about the quality. All they wanted to, to do was to um, have a different kinds of access, a different kind of access to the material and, and, use, and use the photographs in, mm-hmm. in the way that they wanted. So there are instances where they the took the, the photographs to uh, digital studios. You know they will be edited, the background will be removed, and um the whole photograph turned into color, kind of bringing it forward to to the contemporary time of color photography so it, it's, it's quite interesting the way they responded to it.
0: Can you share other examples of of the responses um that people had to to the photographs and also to some of the objects you know some persons
2: felt privileged that objects produced in their communities were taken to the UK and preserved for more than 100 years and that the photographs of their relations their grandparents their great grandparents you know were taken and kept for more than 100 years and I remember one incident in a community called Ibuzo in Delta State to where we set up um, a pop-up exhibition. And people gathered to see the photographs and we were able to identify some people like um, a man called Igweze, another man called Udbeke. And one young man was agitated that he could not find any of his ancestors and and asked us to look through the Thomas archive to check if we could see any of his uh, ancestors. Then another man cajoled him asking, who was your grandfather to have been photographed by the white man, you know, or to have had dealings with with Europeans. Only great people had dealings with with Europeans and were photographed and kept in that kind for for more than a hundred years. So you don't expect your ancestors to be here. And the other person was disappointed and, and angry. And then later he, he came back to us and said, Please don't mind what these people are saying. Go back to that archive and search thoroughly. He gave us the name, the name, the name of his great grandfather, and said that he was a great man. And I know that his photograph must be in that collection. I found that very fascinating.
1: That's really, really interesting, George. and. Um resonates with me a project I had quite a long time ago that I worked with which was in um, northern Australia with indigenous communities around collections from the 1930s and we took a whole series of photographs um, that had been made by an anthropologist and photographs of the objects in the collection And, and what really struck me is that people were much more engaged with the photographs of people and that sense of connection, ancestral connection, Looking for the kind of family resemblances of people that they knew now and, and, and kind of identifying that. Was that your experience in Nigeria?
2: Exactly the same thing. In people were mm-hmm. more interested in photographs than the artifacts, the artifacts. And they were more interested in photographs of people than photographs of objects or sceneries or festivals and so on. You know? so, and I also remember how. Some people you know try to lay claim um, to the objects as custodians of history and culture so they'll they'll request for the photographs and the photographs of the artifacts and and keep them without necessarily telling the people how they were sourced how who brought them the, an example it, it happened in you know one, um, community also in delta State. Um, Where well, the original system of headship in that community uh, and title taking has been changed so that the prestige of the highly esteemed OB title holders wins. So, following the institution of a new administrative system. So, in, in the new system, an administrator was uh, appointed to take the headship position. Uh, that was once occupied by the eldest man in the community, who they called Dioba. So, so in that old system, the Obi title holders worked hand in hand with the Dioba. But in the new administration, um, uh, that that situation was undermined. So the new administration undermined the, the position of the Obi title holders, so that they became less important. So in that community, we met one Obi Mukobia whose father was was photographed by Thomas, you know, and he was, he was pleased to see the photograph of, of his fa- grandfather. So when we took the photograph to him, um, he requested for all the photographs that Thomas took in the community. So later, we learned that he displayed them in his compound and members of the community trooped in to view the photographs of the ancestors. And uh, with the image of um Korbia reinforced and then, I mean, with those images, with the photographs, so Obimokovia reinforced his public image as a custodian of the history of the community. Uh, his status he acquired by virtue of having spent some time um, in, the, in the UK uh, some years ago. So it was like saying that he had access to the historical documents, which others did not have access to, even the, the current administrative head. So there's all sorts of you know, connection with the materials and using them to project who they are or who whom the community is and all all other sorts of uh, political interests
0: and so do you think that these um these newly acquired um sort of indirect powers through uh, the past and through heritage does that strengthen so in, in this community do you think does that strengthen the community or does it uh, weakened it or it doesn't change and I ask that question specifically because I'm imagining this this person with their newly sort of uh, rebranded or polished uh, brand, um, do, they, uh, do they do good to the community? Yes, it, it does good. <laughs> so the,
2: the materials cause chaos, they also bring um, happiness to the people. Like in that same community of Opanam, there was a debate which seemed to be, uh, I've said, settled, but I'm not sure that's the correct way because the, the issue was not actually settled. But somehow um, it laid credence to the position of one of the parties. So, so in that community, there is a woman called Omu. Omu is a, 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 a woman king, not not just not a queen, but a woman king, because once she becomes, um, she's no longer seen as a woman. She, she's now seen as a man. She can't even live with her husband again. And she takes the, the title, the obit title, which is taken by men only. So she's the only woman entitled to take that title. So, and when we got to the community, there was a debate around the use of red cap. So, the OB title holders dressed in the half red cap. And the Omu also has a red cap because she is, she is, uh, seemed to be at par with the OB title holders. So, but it happened that The new administration did not favor that. So they tried to undermine the position of the omu and began to claim that the Oumu should not even wear a red cap. But behold, Thomas photographed the omu of that community in 1912. And when we presented the photograph, the Oumu had a cap on on her head. And that, that was presumably a red cap. Of course, um, it's a, a, a black and white photograph, but if you look at the form of the cap, you'll know that it's what, what we have as red cap today. And it was a, a new set of discovery. The whole community was saying, oh, they say that the Omo should not wear red cap. But here, here is the photograph of Omo in 1912, and she wore her red cap. It was a huge debate there are some other other examples in, in, uh, in sukwa the people feel that the current Obi of the um, uh, of the community is not from the royal family. You know the obi should come from the royal family, so but somehow um, there was kind of interference of state politics that made him to become the Obi and it, it has been in contention for a long time until we brought the photograph that Thomas produced in that community, and they realized who was supposed to be the right will be. And they took the photographs and decided to um, uh, make a, a, case, a, a case in the court. Although we've not gone back there to, uh, to find out what has happened, but the man who took the photographs from us said you have brought documents that will shake our community, that will correct this evil in our community, that will settle this political conflict in our own community. Although I don't know whether I can say that they're actually settling any conflict. But um, we can look at, at the, the two sides, settling conflict, but also um, causing conflicts.
1: I mean, it's really interesting examples to hear about. And I think you know, the way in which, um debate about restitution and repatriation in Europe is often that, you know, things should be returned, and that's a good in and of itself. Um, I remember someone in an Australian context talking about some returns being like kind of throwing a grenade into a community because of the tensions and the politics that were, that were kind of inherently there. And I guess I'm interested in, you know, the settling, but also, you know, are there risks around conflict arising um, through the return of, of, of some of these kinds of, you know, photographs, artifacts,
2: and so on? Yeah, true, I, I, I too feel that this repatriation and restitution debate is, is beyond what we think, especially what people think in the UK or Europe generally. Because if you return these artifacts, where do you keep them? It's not enough to keep them in national museums. Because there's, there, there's one case we met in our community where a, a particular shrine called Haban was taken to the UK and later it was returned to the National Museum in Lagos. And the members of the community still feel that Harbour has not been returned. You know, So for them, it wasn't returned. That, that you kept it in the National Museum doesn't mean that you returned it. And remember that some of these artifacts were taken from particular um, families, particular households, not only community houses, so if we bring them back back to the country, um, are you able to trace the particular families they were taken from? You know, so it's, it's really a complicated debate, and um, I, I think the debate is even stronger in Europe than than in
0: Nigeria. Do you do you feel like this stems from a sense of guilt? And I ask that because this idea that why um, museums in, in the UK, in this instance, have, are surrounded by all these African artifacts and museums in Africa are not uh, in the same position. And it, to me, it seems as though, you know, the debate around repatriation and restitution, it's more, let's just give these things back. We, we, don't, we, don't, want, we don't want to deal with them anymore. We don't want to feel shame anymore. We don't want to feel guilt anymore. You know, one of my friends, Kelechi Uguain, who did his PhD um, in the
2: University of York, has a a very crazy position that that I I realized in the field when I went uh, for field work, that Kelechi is probably right. So Kelechi argues that we don't even have any reason to keep these things. So his argument is that it's not even in our culture to keep objects for a long time. So, and why, why does he say that? There is a figure called Ikenga uh, among the Igbo. The Ikenga is like um, a personal, personal goal, you know, that drives one's um, success you know that least one true life. So everybody is supposed to have a personal ikenga. What happens is that once once Ikenga gets gets destroyed, maybe eaten up by termites or is destroyed by by enemies, it is thrown away and another one is made. And the, the, the spirits of the ancestors are invoked in the object and they begin to operate again. So his argument is that we, it's not in our culture to keep things the way um, the Europeans keep. We only keep the ones that, that we, what we, we use at the moment. And once anything happens to them, we don't bother someone. We make, we make another one. And the power is transmitted from the old one to... So, and what matters is not so much about the material, it's about the the invisible powers that the the, the object possesses. You know, so I guess that's why the debate is not strong about returning them. So the whole idea of museum in the sense, we know it today, um, it's not very African. We have our own, our own distinct kind of mise practice So we have a village square, for example, um, a, a, and you have um, mas- masquerade costumes that are activated when, when performances are organized. And after that, they are kept again. The musical instruments are there uh, during festivals, during performances, they are played. And after that, they, they are kept there. And when they get destroyed, new ones are made. So this, this is a very complicated debate. And I, I feel that the, the, the project was done with on, on reentanglement is a very good type of project that allows us to, to ask these questions, allows us to um, think about the, the communities where these artifacts came from and get, I, I get their views about, about them. So that if we are thinking of doing anything around restitution or repatriation, let us listen to the views of these people.
1: Very interesting to hear you, you talk about, you know, the, the kind of cultural practices in which these objects are embedded. And it's often the sense in museums that actually what's lost is the kinds of knowledge, the practices in which they have a part. And that becomes, they become examples of culture as these things, but actually they kind of they've kind of lost that. But when you were talking about that, I wondered whether you felt there would be differences in places and communities where a lot of that kind of practice and knowledge maybe hasn't survived and has been destroyed by the process of colonialism maybe the attitude to the kind of artifacts becomes different um you know and going back to your example of your grandmother's you know broom that that you have that kind of connection but if you felt like you've lost that entirely maybe the need for those you know the material representations of that would would feel stronger i don't know what you think
2: yeah um it is it it's it's possible to think that way, but I don't think the, the people who saw the objects, the pictures of the objects, desire them to come back. Because they have left them. It's not that they can't produce them anymore. They can. But I remember in, in a community called Obu, we showed them the picture of a grater to use for grating young. And they were, they were, they were excited to see that again. You know, they say that they told us the, the kind of food made with the grater. So there's a, a yam called a kind of yam called water yam. So um, they peel the they peel the back and and, and 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 grate it. After which they mix it with vegetable and other spices and and, and cook. So these days metal metal grater is used. So it's completely impossible for the people to desire to use the, the, the old grater again. And because it's possible, it's very easy to make, but they, they don't make it anymore. They find the method grater easier to use. So I, I don't think that the, the fact that they, uh, they have fond memories when they see this old object, I don't think it means that they want to have them back and use them again. How, anyway, however, that's not to say that everything has been lost. Because I know that mass for example, Masquerades um, are still there. But some of the ones we photographed in Cambridge are no longer there. Some of them that are are at the core of the social system, the justice system, and the organization of the community. Well, I I, I feel bad about that one personally. You know? Um, So, you know, know, the the Igbo people have, or those days, they had a unique system of justice that allowed them to checkmates, human excesses, you know, through oath taking and divination, the gods and the ancestors intervened in human affairs and delivered justice. Offer, fourth, the evil symbol of justice, is kept by those in positions of authority and used to seal pronouncements. And an individual would take an oath before the offer and he's not expected to lie. Otherwise he will be punished by the gods by striking him dead or bringing him a malicious illness and the offer holder himself must be an upright man otherwise he will be struck some of those um artifacts have been lost uh, because I, I say that people don't always want to have those um objects back but there are instances where the few oh, uh, society has been destroyed um because we've left our uh, old ways of doing things.
1: I mean, some of the changes that you're talking about and the disappearance of certain masquerade figures, how much is that connected to, you know, conversion and Christianity? And are those issues that are
2: still arising? In, you know, the Igbo society, for example, is becoming a complicated one. Because um, at the Igbo conference, which took place a few months ago, I presented a paper on how Christianity and the Igbo traditional religion are coming together. Could you believe that there are instances where Christian events involve masquerade performance? So at a time that we feel that these things will have been abandoned, they are not. So things are coming together in a way that we didn't expect, you know? But I also, I, I, I think it speaks to the, the kind of expectation people had um, about Christianity. People thought that Christianity would solve all the problems um, and and that did not happen. so gradually people are rolling back to what they even feel that was more
0: efficient. Thank you so much George. Uh, one last thing i've been I've been wondering as you, as you you are you are sharing uh, these experiences with us is has this project changed the way you, um, you work, the way you, you do your own scholarship? Of course, yes. It has. So
2: I have come to appreciate more the involvement of um, communities in certain kinds of research. So you, you don't just um, um, be in a museum in the UK or in other parts of Europe and begin to write papers and books on museum collections, but they have no idea what, what the communities where they were collected from, you know, to say, you know? So, and I am happy with the kind of um, relationship and connections we forged here in, in, um, in Nigeria while doing the field work. We worked with artists who were invited to um, use the the pictures and the artifacts to to produce new new works of art as a way of interrogating the archive. So we worked with musicologists who produced um, some um, some music with the audio recordings. So we worked with all sorts of people. We even worked with somebody who who sponsored the, the film we produced, the the Ichi film, uh, which is um, is uh, it's not yet out, but. Um, I hope that that will come out soon. It was sponsored by a member of the Nenê community, you know. So, and that gave me a sense of how people are willing to be involved in 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 things that affect their history, things that affect their their culture. And because I am a member of this of, of this yeah. this of, of this region. You know I feel that I'm particularly connected to that, because being a member of, of one of the communities and also um, uh, a researcher, so I see myself uh, struggling between the two worlds, and it means a lot for me in thinking about how to balance um, my position as a researcher and as someone from a colonized society.
1: Thank you so much, George. Um, it's great to have your kind of reflections and to hear more about the project and how it worked. You know, in, in Nigeria, and obviously it started from the idea of these collections um, and an interrogation into what to do with them. Uh, I just was thinking of a series of questions that we've kind of given ourselves as part of this podcast. You know, which are what what lessons do African objects have for us in the twenty first century? Uh, what can we learn about them? Um, learn from them about Africa's long relationship with Europe. And what can they teach us about being and becoming human? And I think that the way your conversation has touched on it, on a number of those things in different ways, but I wondered if you had any thoughts from your involvement in the Reentanglements project on, you know, on which of those questions maybe is, is most important mm-hmm. and what, we, what you've learned from your engagement with the project. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I like this idea of becoming human. You know, because you, you all of us are aware of um, this, Understanding that Africa has no history, Africa, Africa has no this, Africa doesn't do this and that. But this, this is a society that has had its own order. It was only interrupted. You know, it has own, its own order in a way that, that will shock you. L- let me give you an example with the 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 uh, the, um, the animal skulls we photographed in Cambridge, decorated with cane. So we were wondering what what they were. Then, when we got to Ebenebe in Anambra State, we we found plenty of animal skulls in an obu, many Mm -hmm. of them, like in hundreds, with different designs, even designs different from what we found in Cambridge. And the members of the community told us that the designs represented different people. Those scores were records of maybe hunting expeditions or great events like title-taking ceremony. If a hunter killed a spectacular animal like a buffalo, the score would be kept there, decorated in a particular way to represent the, the, the hunter. So that over time, You would come and say, oh this this reminds me of Susu hunter, and this one reminds me of the the title taking ceremony of Susu person." For me, this is a powerful means of documentation and writing. So when when it is said that Africans uh, don't keep records, I I don't know what that means. This is this is the kind of record keeping that is even concrete, you know. I find that very fascinating and that's one of the things we can learn so Africans have their own means of keeping records and even communication. I remember we we saw one eco, eco is a a slit drum, very big drum, wooden drum, which was only beaten in times of emergency. And let me not say in terms of images only, but the way the, the drum was beaten yeah, was determined by by the purpose of call, of, of beating the drum, beating, playing the drum. So in terms of crisis, in terms of crisis like maybe the, if the 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 community was attacked uh, by uh, warriors those days, so the drum would be played in a particular way, and people would know that there was trouble. And immediately, they will come together in the, in the village square and decide what to do. This is for me a powerful means of communication.
1: Uh, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, that the question that when we put that together around, around being and becoming human was, um, you know, addressed to this sort of dehumanization that was part of colonialism. Of Africans, but there's also an argument that Europeans were dehumanized and became, you know, brutish um, through the way in which they engaged and and, and failed to recognize humanity in other people. Um, So I guess for me, the (laughs) the question, the question is not only about rehumanizing Africa, but also about rehumanizing Europe.
0: This podcast was introduced and presented by Dr. Chris Wingfield and Benjamina Effordazi. Our guest, Dr. George Emeka Akbo, is a lecturer at the Department of Fine and Applied Arts, University of Nigeria in Suka. He was a research associate on the AHRC-funded Museum Affordances Project, which retraces the itineraries of British anthropologists Northcott Thomas, who worked in Nigeria and Sierra Leone between 1909 and 1915. In his work, Dr. Agbo explores how circulation and interactions around photographs produce political critique of the Nigerian post-colonial condition.